Hello and welcome to Truth in Journalism, a radio broadcast dedicated to applying the Word of God to current events. Well, today on Truth in Journalism, we're going to talk about truth in advertising. Our story is from NPR and is entitled, Californians bought Barilla Pasta thinking it was made in Italy. Now they're suing. The Barilla Pasta Company is being sued in a California court for allegedly misleading U.S. consumers with false advertising that its U.S.-sold pastas are made in Italy. What would it be like to live in a world where everything that was printed in an ad or said in the commercial were true, without you having to read the fine print? It seems that's the world that Matthew Sinatro and Jessica Prost are seeking to build, at least when it comes to spaghetti. The two are behind a class action lawsuit against the pasta-making company Barilla, which they say is deliberately deceiving shoppers by using the slogan, Italy's number one brand of pasta, on its packaging. Despite the green, white, and red stylized Italian flags displayed on the blue boxes of angel hair, fusilli, and bowtie pastas, a complaint filed in Northern California notes that the majority of the company's products sold in the U.S. are produced in Iowa and New York and are not made with ingredients sourced from Italy. Sinatro and Prost argue in their complaint that they were duped by the company's alleged false advertising and deceptive marketing practices, and that they would not have spent a combined total of $6 on Barilla products had they known the pastas they were taking home were made in the United States. Instead, they would have opted for cheaper alternatives. Consumers willingly pay more for Italian-sounding and or looking products, and Barilla leveraged the implied connection to Italy in an effort to increase profits and to obtain an unfair competitive advantage, the complaint states. Barilla did not respond to NPR's request for comment, but the company does address the issue on its website. Barilla pasta that is sold in the United States is made in our plants in Ames, Iowa and Avon, New York, with a few exceptions. Barilla tortellini and Barilla oven-ready lasagna are made in Italy, the website states. The site also notes that the recipes used in the United States are the same as those used in Parma, Italy, and that the pastas are made by the same types of machines. The company's 2021 financial report states that the U.S. continues to represent the most important market in the Americas region. Court documents show that Barilla filed to get the case dismissed, arguing that Sinatra and Prost couldn't prove that they suffered financial harm. Sinatra, who lives in San Francisco, purchased one box of angel hair pasta for about $2, while Prost bought two boxes of spaghetti for approximately $2 each at a grocery store in Los Angeles, according to the complaint. The company moved to dismiss the case in August, but a judge rejected the request last week. When I first read the headlines about this case, I thought that it meant that the purchasers bought the entire company, as though Barilla somehow hid all its manufacturing from some tech billionaires, and now they were getting sued for a failure to disclose issue. But but no, it's far more ridiculous and far more idiotic than that. These people are filing a class action suit against Barilla with a total of $6 in damages because they assumed, or claimed they assumed, that Barilla was made in Italy and that therefore it was a better product, but the specific boxes of pasta they bought were not made in Italy, therefore they paid too much. Indeed, the claim is that Barilla deceives customers into believing that it's an Italian product which gives it an unfair competitive advantage. Now, the insane thing is that there might actually be a case here. If Barilla were claiming that its pasta were made in the America and lying about it, there would be a case there. It is important to note that some Barilla pasta sold in America is made in Italy, but only a few styles of pasta. It is also important to note that the scarcity of Barilla's Italian-made products in America is largely because Italy doesn't grow enough durum wheat to meet the global demand. 
Now, these people might have a case. Pretty ridiculous as it is, but they might have a case. A case so small that it doesn't meet the constitutional threshold for a jury trial, which is $20. So, we've had 250 years of inflation, and the Founding Fathers would still say your case is hardly worth wasting the court's time. But they want to make it a class action. So they have to prove that Barilla has done a large number of small harms rather than a small number of large harms. And for various reasons, the judge determined not to dismiss this case based upon Barilla's you know, motion to dismiss. You can read the judge's arguments yourself as to why, but strictly speaking, it seems like the judge is trying to follow the law. All right, then. So far, we've established that Barilla Pasta is being sued. They're being sued for false advertising in a class action suit. Their central claim is that Barilla deceives consumers into believing that their product is made in Italy, which it isn't, to gain an unfair competitive advantage, and that harms consumers and customers by inducing them to pay more for a potentially inferior product. And frankly, I feel like the claim is not unreasonable. Now, there are all sorts of fun twists and turns that this case could take. I'm envisioning blind taste tests and witness stand breakdowns, but that seems less than likely because this case, while it is about product superiority, really isn't about product superiority. It's about our interpretation of words and the conveyance of meaning. Because you see, Barilla is owned and headquartered in Italy, and they are selling an Italian product. The plaintiffs claim that the presence of an Italian flag on the box next to the words Italy's number one brand of pasta deceives people into thinking that the pasta is made in Italy. But that's not what the box says, is it? And the box does say that the pasta is made in America. But the plaintiffs claim that the Italian trickler and the claim about it being the number one brand are too far away from the wording that states where the pasta is made to prevent a reasonable person from being duped. Now, frankly, I think that if I were on a jury, I would tell the plaintiffs to read the whole box and learn how words work. But at the same time, I don't think they're entirely wrong. The box certainly could be interpreted as insinuating that the pasta is made in Italy. In fact, I've bought in Barilla pasta and assumed that it was made in Italy, but I'm not suing. And I'm not suing because I'm not a ridiculous person. And I'm not suing because I know how marketing works and I was the guy who chose not to read the whole box. It's nobody's fault but mine. So was I deceived? Well, it really depends, doesn't it? Barilla is an Italian-owned and headquartered company, and they are, in fact, the most popular brand in Italy. Moreover, they are selling Italian foodstuffs. Should they be forbidden from using the Italian flag or noting their popularity because these particular noodles aren't made in Italy? I don't think so. I think that they're fully within their rights to use the labeling they do. But I also feel like they are implying or insinuating that the pasta in the box comes from Italian-grown durum wheat and is made in Italy. Now, I'm not sure what Barilla is trying to accomplish. I have my guesses, but those are immaterial to what I want us to consider today. What is important is that whatever Barilla's intention, the reality is that sometimes the truth can be used to deceive. Sometimes a lie can be made of nothing but true statements. Now, wait. I know. You think I'm a madman. How can you tell the truth and still lie? How can you tell the truth and not tell the truth simultaneously? Well, very easily. Let me give you a very famous example about a chemical known as DHMO. DHMO is also known as hydroxyl acid and is a major component of acid rain. 
It contributes to the greenhouse effect. It may cause severe burns. Contributes to the erosion of our natural landscape. Accelerates corrosion and rusting of many metals. May cause electrical failures and decreased effectiveness in automobile brakes. Has been found in excised tumors of terminal cancer patients. Despite the danger, dihydrogen monoxide is often used as an industrial solvent and coolant in nuclear power plants, in the production of styrofoam as a fire retardant, in many forms of cruel animal research, in the distribution of pesticides. Even after washing, produce remains contaminated by this chemical as an additive in certain junk foods and other food products. Now, many of you have heard this example before, and you know what the product I'm talking about is, and you know that it's water. <laughs> Okay, you see the brilliance of this example, which was invented by a 14 year old, by the way, you, 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 you get it. The brilliance of it is that it lines up a bunch of true statements and leads you to infer that there is a causal relationship between DHMO and all these negative things. The version I gave you never says it's toxic or harmful to humans, but the arrangement of the facts makes it sound as though it's a nasty industrial man-made compound that needs to be banned. But how? How do a series of true statements become a lie? Well, the reason that they become a lie is because when we consider communication, we can't just look at the pure content of every word and statement isolated from context. We have to look at the message as a whole. And there's something even more important. There's an idea in communication theory called the implied reader. Now, I'm not going to get into the weeds on this, but think about it this way. The implied reader in writing is the person who responds to the writing in the way the author wants. The writer expects certain people to respond in certain ways to certain things in their writing. I have an implied listener to these broadcasts, an implied reader to my theological essays that I publish on my website. I have an implied listener to my sermons. If I'm teaching a junior department Sunday school lesson, I have a different idea of who's hearing me than if I'm submitting a theological essay for publication with a journal. The implied reader is very different. And because they are very different, I have to change the way I communicate. I'm not going to talk to children the way I talk to academic theologians. Although sometimes we need to talk to academic theologians the way we talk to children, but that's another issue. The point is that all of us know how to change how we communicate based upon how others will hear and receive and interpret and respond to our words. Humans are shockingly good at predicting how people will respond to what we say. And what this means is that for something to be true, it not only has to be accurate in its propositions, but the intention must be to communicate truth. Intention matters because all communication revolves around intent. Without intention, there is no communication. If we sit down to have lunch and talk, we do so for a purpose. Even if the purpose is as banal as filling the air with small talk so it doesn't get awkward, our intention would be to fulfill a social obligation and avoid needless conflict. Whenever we communicate, we are engaging in intentional acts, not only in the sense that they're deliberate, but that they are purposeful. Let me give you a great example of lies through truth. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, 
For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. If you look carefully at what Satan says here, he never actually says anything that, taken in isolation, isn't at least technically correct. His first question is a question. He doesn't assert anything. But what he does do is insinuate that God's commands are unreasonable. He knows that the woman will now begin to stop thinking about her freedom and focus on her limitations. So at the level of the word spoken, it was simply a question, neither true nor false. But at the level of intention, it was a lie because it caused her to believe something that was untrue. Next, he tells the woman that she will not surely die. Now, the Hebrew is complex. It literally could be translated as dying you shall die. And it's a Hebrew grammatical feature that expresses certainty. First, she has a false idea about the command, which plays into this. But Satan insinuates that the claim of surely die means that she will physically perish that day, which she didn't. And so based upon one reading of God's command to Adam, you could argue that Satan told the truth. And yet he lied because he insinuated that God would not carry out the punishment he had threatened. Lastly, Satan knows that the man and the woman will be like God. And he says so. He says that they will be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, God does know good and evil. And so to that degree, they would be like God. Satan knows it's true. God knows it's true. But the insinuation is clearly that they would achieve near deity. The implication is that by disobeying, they would actualize themselves, that by defying God and God's will, they would be like God. And of course, Satan is a liar. But you could, you might, you can defend every one of Satan's statements in Genesis 3 as being technically true. But they're still lies. And Jesus says they're lies. Satan lies by telling the truth. And sadly, all too many people have learned Satan's tricks. As the old saying goes, there are three kinds of lies. Lies, damn lies, and statistics. And the other one, figures don't lie, but liars can figure. And, and since this is polling season and election season, I figured these are two very good examples of, of lying by telling the truth. Now look, I'm not here to tell you that Barilla owes people their money back. What I am saying is that if you're a child of God, you have a duty to reject the prince of lies who speaks his native language when he lies. Christians, we have an obligation not only to say things that are technically, factually accurate, but we're to do more than that. We're to speak the truth in love. We're to make sure that what is insinuated, what is implied, and, and what is inferred from our statements to the best of our ability is the truth. Let's speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I hope and pray we will. And I hope you'll join us again next time for another exciting episode of Truth in Journalism. Thank you, and may God bless your day to his glory.